Come in, come in, my old true love, and spend this night with me. For I have a bed, it's a very fine bed. I'll give it up for thee, thee. I'll give it up for thee. It's I can't come in, no, I ain't coming in to spend this night with thee. For I have a wife in the old Scotland. This night she waits for me, me. This night she waits for me. Had she drawed out her little penknife, had been both keen and sharp, she stepped up to her own true love and stabbed him through his heart. Heart, she stabbed him through his heart. Woe be, woe be, Lady Margaret, he cried. Woe be, woe be to thee, for there ain't no wife in the old country that I loved any better than thee. Thee that I loved any better than thee. That's 2013 National Heritage Award recipient Sheila K. Adams singing Young Hunting. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Sheila K. Adams is a seventh-generation ballad singer, musician, and storyteller. She was born and raised in Madison County, North Carolina, in a little place named Sodom. It's an area well-known for its a cappella ballad singing a tradition that dates back to the early Scots-Irish and English settlers of the mid-17th century. Singing and playing the banjo has always been a central part of Sheila's life. She learned the traditional way of singing primarily from her great-aunt, Deli Chandler Norton, although other notable singers in the community, such as Dillard Chandler and Lee Wallen, were also eager to share their songs with her. Sheila began performing publicly in her teens and hasn't really stopped since. In the intervening years, she's performed at festivals, concerts, music camps, and workshops around the country and throughout the United Kingdom, where many of her ballads were first sung. Somewhere along the line, she also started telling stories about all the characters that lived in and around Sodom, and she found herself in demand for her storytelling as much as her singing and playing. After it was announced that she was the recipient of a 2013 National Heritage Award, I visited her at her home in Madison County, where we settled down on her front porch to talk. In this, the first of a two-part interview, we focus on her music and its deep roots in the community of Sodom, North Carolina. But first, I had to know how the area got its name. Well, I know several stories how it got its name, but if you're a storyteller, what you do is you pick the best story out of all the stuff that you've heard. And so... The best story I heard was back during the Civil War, we were so divided in this part of the world. Most of my family were in the Union Army. They went over into East Tennessee and joined the Union Army. And then there was a Confederate training camp for young cadets in Hot Springs, North Carolina, which is also in Madison County. And in between the Confederates and the Union, there was a troop of ladies of the evening that didn't have real loyalty to either side, and so they sort of went back and forth and just happened to be that they would meet up a lot in this little place that I grew up in. And there was a circuit-riding Baptist preacher that came through. You know, they had a brush arbor revival. 
and from the pulpit he said, This place, there's more sinning goes on here than in Sodom in the Bible. And so, of course, the war ended and the troops moved on and ladies of the evening found somewhere else to go and the name of Sodom, though, stuck. And it, as far as I can tell, it was populated pretty much by five or six different families. That's right. So you were pretty much related to everybody. I was, by blood, marriage, and usually both, just because that's the way of a small mountain community. For instance, my parents were double third cousins. But it makes this ancestry, you know, doing your, your family chart as far as ancestry, it makes it really easy when you come from a place like Madison County because it just goes up like a telephone pole or else it's a family wreath. It's not a tree, it's a wreath. It just goes right around and around. It's all the same people. And it was known for a couple of things. It held on to traditional music, the way music was done in Sodom, especially ballad singing. It's a direct route back to England, where, right. where it had begun. As a matter of fact, due to this oral history that was passed down in my family, I know where my people came out of the northern part of England and the southern part of Scotland, the border country of Scotland and England. They came out of Whitehall. And that style of singing you hear in the border country today, you know, which is right on the border of northern England and southern Scotland, and you also hear it in northern Ireland. That's real similar to the way I heard it growing up. The songs are really similar. The ones that I sing talk about Scotland. For I've got a wife in the old Scotland, and this night she waits for me. My family got here in 1731 in Madison County, what's now Madison County. And so think about all the years that they have been keeping this tradition of singing these songs alive to the point where there are still songs that talk about the Clyde River in Scotland. And I've got a wife in Scotland, and tonight she waits for me. What? 300 years down the road, 400 years down the road. And it actually is closer to the original than those same songs sung in that, England. That's what Cecil Sharp, who was a collector that came through here in the teens, said. He was from England, and he said that he found purer versions of the English and Scottish folk songs in the southern Appalachians than he found in modern-day England, which would have been during the teens as well, and Scotland. In Scarlet Town, where I was born, there was a fair maid dwelling, made every youth cry well a day, and they called her Barbary Allen. It was in the month of May, when all gay flowers were a-blooming, Sweet William on his deathbed lay For the want of Barbary Allen He called his servant to his bed And bade him Why do you think that music had such deep roots in your community? Well, mountain people don't like change, for one thing. And the other thing is that they stay in the same place. It's just like the woman that I referred to as Granny. Granny lived, uh, was married, raised her children, buried all of them but one, buried her husband, 
and then died and was buried herself within a five-mile radius. And that's true of all of the singers that I learned from. They, they lived in one place. They stayed right there in Sodom. And I think as a result of that, because all of them were related by blood marriage or both, and usually both, it stayed within a community as opposed to just one family because that's what you found in a lot of other areas was that there would be one family that was keeping the tradition alive. But here we had a, an extended family, but that amounted to the whole community that kept these singing of the old songs a cappella tradition alive. And that is how it's done. It is. Without music. Without music. And the woman you refer to as Granny is Delly Norton. Yeah, that's Delly Chandler Norton, and her sister's name was... Uh, Brazilla Chandler, Wallen. So they just kept marrying back in, you know, to the same families. But Granny had the most unique voice other than Dillard Chandler that I, that I heard singing over there. And you said that she would sing Young Emily, for example. Beautiful, beautiful song. And she would always sing that when she was milking the cows. Milking the cows. And what was your job while she was milking the cows? Holding the tail. Because I was... Um, Daddy called me his active child, and so I had to be kept busy, and I had to hold the tail so it wouldn't come around in the springtime, summer, and fall and swat Granny in the side of the head because she would always lean her head against the cow's side while she was milking. And, of course, you know, the the cow would, if I wasn't holding the tail, would come around and smack her in in the face with it. So I got to hold the tail while she sat there and milked and sang. And she always sang that song. I always sang Young Emily. Do you think you could sing a little bit for me? Yeah. Young Emily was a fair maid. She loved to drive her boy. He drove in the main for some gold to gain. Way down in the lowlands low. My father runs a public house all on yonder shore. Go ye, go ye, and enter in, and there abide this night. It's such a beautiful song. It really is. And I'm sure when you hear that, or when you sing that, you have a very different image in mind than I have as I'm listening to it because you have this this entire history that comes with it. Do you know the funny thing is that when I sing Young Emily, it's like I am transported back in time to that little girl that held onto the tail of that cow and I can smell warm milk in my mind, you know, in my mind's nose, I guess is what you'd say because it it takes me back to, especially in the early spring, and the late fall when Granny was milking, you know, the steam would rise up out of that bucket and I can still smell that smell whenever I sing that song. Mm. That's a wonderful image. Yeah. And you learned to sing from her. I learned to sing from her, and as a result of learning these old love songs, I also got to learn from Kaz Wallen and her sister Brazilla and Dillard Chandler and Lee Wallen, Brazilla's husband, Inez Chandler. There were so many of them that were singing over there at that time that once I kind of started learning these songs when I was five, they all wanted me to learn their their songs. They called them their songs, but it was just the ones that they they kind of showcased 
themselves. How did you learn? Um, I learned in what Granny Kyle was the old style knee to knee, where I sat across from whoever was singing with our knees almost touching, and I would close my eyes, because some of these songs have got a lot of verses to them. I would close my eyes, and they would sing a verse, and I would sing it back to them. And then they would sing the second verse, and I would have to sing the first and second back to them. So by the end of the song, even if it was one with 40 verses to it, I would have caught the song by the time it was over because I would have repeated it however many verses were in the song. We talked a little bit about what was unique about the ballad singing that came out of Sodom, and it's a cappella, it's done without music. What else? They did a lot of what Cecil Sharp called ornamentation, and that was the collector that came through in the teens. And he even says in his introduction that he could write the tune, he could write the note down that they were singing, but there was no way that he could provide the embellishment and that really the embellishment that the singer gave to each song. And he said that the only way that one could acquire that would be to listen to somebody who had learned in that tradition because he said it was foreign to anything he had ever heard anywhere. Were you always taken by that music, Sheila? Oh, I loved it. I, as I've loved it as far as I can remember. That, that style of singing always just caught my heart. And they had so many of those songs were actually stories that had these great plots to them, great stories. And I was always a sucker for a story, whether it was told or sung. And so the, the fact that they were stories... And those tunes were so plaintive. And they always sang with such emotion that it was hard not, not to pay attention to what they were singing. It's interesting because the songs are so plaintive and the stories tend to be funnier than the songs. Do you think that's accurate? That's absolutely accurate because, well, okay, the songs that Granny and... Her sister sang and that Kaz sang were the longer, they called them all love songs, but, you know, they were really traditional ballads from Scotland and England and Northern Ireland mainly. And so when I finally heard Inez Chandler sing, she asked me to come down to her house one day, and uh, she sang some of the dirtiest songs I have ever heard in my life. Now, this was a woman who was in her late 60s, early 70s, that sang one raucous, off-color song after another. So there were those songs that were in the tradition, but it's just that not everybody sang them. Mm -hmm. And Inez would have never sung them out in public. She taught me a song called The Seven Nights Drunk that I can only sing four verses to. So it's really The Four Nights Drunk. You want to give me... Oh, I will be glad to. Oh, please. I come home the other night as drunk as I could be. And I saw a horse standing in the stable where my horse ought to be. Said, come here, little wifey, explain this thing to me. Whose horse is that a standing in the stable where my horse ought to be? You blind, fooly, drunk old fool, now can't you plainly see? That's only a milk cow your granny sent to me. Well, I've traveled this whole world over a hundred times or more, but a saddle on a milk cow's back I never did see before. I come home the other night as drunk as I could be, and I saw a hat a hanging on the rack where my hat ought to be. 
said, come here, little wifey, explain this thing to me. Whose hat is that a-hanging on the rack where my hat art to be? You blind fool, you drunk old fool, can't you plainly see? Well, that's only a dish rag your granny sent to me. Well, I've traveled this whole world over a hundred times or more, but a J.B. Stetson dish rag I never did see before. And so it keeps going that way. You know, in the third verse is a pair of britches on the floor, and she tells him it's a flower sack. And the fourth verse is a head on the pillow. And that's all I can sing in public. You just let it rest there. I, and usually I will tell whatever audience is listening that they'll just have to uh, use their imagination on the last three verses because there's no way you can sing them in public. And she had over a hundred of those songs. So they there were the plaintive kind of love songs, but then they were the raucous, you know, Seven Nights Drunk songs as well. Those were more inside songs. They were v- definitely inside songs. But, you know, those are the ones that are in the danger of in danger of losing completely mm-hmm. because nobody sings them in public. When you were a teenager, did you go through a period of distancing yourself a bit from traditional music? Were you seduced by rock and roll? Absolutely. You know, I was a child of the 60s just like everybody else was. I loved, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Paul Revere and the Raiders and all of those, um, the Who, you know, all those bands that everybody else was um, so taken with, Herman's Hermits. So I was a child of the 60s, but but at the same time, I, I never stopped being just mesmerized by these love songs. And when I got to be a teenager, they started teaching me the, uh, or learning me, as they called it, the more adult songs. You know, prior to that, I had sort of gotten songs that I didn't really know the meaning of. And when I would ask, they would say, oh, you'll, we'll explain that to you when you get older. And they did. But your mother wasn't very interested. No, she wasn't. Mama was uh, a child of the Depression era. And to a certain extent, my father held the same views as Mama did. They felt like that that old music, those old songs, that old fiddle banjo playing music was directly linked somehow to that extreme poverty that they suffered as children and young adults. Mama told me one time that they threw their culture away with both hands because they associated it with that poverty. So Mama would have rather me played piano than banjo. Well, she gave you piano Yes, she did. Oh, I hated piano. Oh, I hated piano. And I remember Miss Sarah Thomas, piano teacher, doing the very best job that she possibly could, and finally told my mother that I was completely tone deaf and it was a waste of her time, my time, and Mama's money. So it worked. I got out of having to play piano or try to play piano. But what she got really angry with me about is during the recital, I didn't like the pitch of the ballet mazurka, whatever that is. But I remember the title to it, so I changed the key of it on the piano because I didn't like how high it was. And so I played it in a different key on the piano. You know, thank gosh I got out of that business. Now, my father thought that what I should do is country and western music because that was where I was going to make some money. He felt like that singing these old songs with no music behind them was just so 
old and so mountain-like, and he didn't want me to um, get into that. He wanted me at 15 to be a country and western singer. And you didn't have much interest in that? Well, he asked me one time when I was 15 to write a song and asked me if I could play, if I thought I could learn to play guitar in a week. And at 15, you know, me and Daddy had gone from me thinking he was the perfect man in the whole universe to locking horns because I was 15 and, and he had a watch that he watched all the time and I had to be home every night at 10 o'clock. Said there wasn't a damn thing that went on after 10 o'clock that I needed to be a part of. That was exactly what he said. So my curfew was 10 o'clock. So he asked me if I, if I thought I could learn how to play guitar. Well, by then I was playing a banjo, uh, although back then I called it a banjo. And uh, I said, well, I think if I can learn how to play the banjo, I can master the guitar in a week, sure. And it would probably help if I had one because I didn't even own a guitar. And Daddy said, I'm going to fix that. I'm going down to Home Electric and buy you a guitar. So he did. He brought me back a little Yamaha, and Daddy worked a public job and would leave on Sundays and come back sometimes if he worked a 10-hour day on Thursdays. But if he worked an 8-hour day, he'd drive all the way home on Friday evening. And so he got me a guitar at the Home Electric, brought it to the house, and I learned four chords over the telephone, which we had just gotten in Sodom when I was 15. And I learned four chords with Ronald Gunner telling me where to put my fingers, and I wrote a little song called Over Home. A quiet summer evening With mist upon the mountain And a breeze whispering soft across my face The love that I feel wells up inside of my soul as I look upon the beauty of this place And someday I'll come home forever If it's only to rest upon some hillside And a love for this land will ever burn in me With my dying I'll sing this song for thee. So when Daddy got back the next weekend, he said, well, did you learn that song? And I said, yep, and I sang it for him. And he said, okay, we're going to go up to Asheville. There's going to be a Nashville, Tennessee talent scout up there, and I want you to sing that song for him. But when I got up there, I got nervous and wouldn't get out of the car. I locked him out of the car and told him I was scared. And he said, well, unlock the door and we'll go back to the house. Never mentioned it again until the summer of 1997. So that would have been about 35, 40 years later. I was in the bean patch up at Burton Cove. It must have been 100% humidity and 150 degrees up there. And the gnats were big enough to carry you off if they'd have had a brain cell between them. And I come up off that ground and I said, I've had enough of this. If it's up to me, I'd never go back into a bean patch again. Ever. If I wasn't so poor, I never would go back in a bean patch. Daddy said, if you'd have got out of the damn car up there in Asheville that night, you might not have to be in the bean patch today. So he remembered it all them years later just to pop me on that particular day in July up in the head of the Burton Cove. But now he, Daddy always felt like I could have made it in country and western, but 
to be honest with you, it was just, it was, uh, for a 15-year-old girl, the thoughts of of that sort of thing was a little too much, having grown up in a little place like Sodom, mm -hmm. where everything was so comfortable for me. I couldn't imagine going to Nashville, Tennessee. I'd never been to Nashville. I'd never been west of Knoxville, Tennessee. So there was no way that I could conceive of going to Nashville, Tennessee and getting into that mess. So uh, I stuck with, with what I knew and loved, which was the old love songs and playing banjo. Now, when did you begin to play banjo? I started playing when I was eight years old. Granny had a, an old banjo, she called it a banjer, under the bed in a flower sack. And I can remember one day she drug that out from under the bed, got it out, and there was still flour that was all over the fretboard and on the strings. And she laid it up in the middle of the bed and said, don't you touch that banjer, I'm going to the barn to gather eggs. And when she came back, I was trying to pick out Cripple Creek on the banjo. So it was a little reverse psychology. And then I had a cousin who just recently passed away, Jerry Adams, who played a fabulous two-finger-style banjo. And he started teaching me how to play when I was about eight and a half or so because I was trying my best to learn, and he just showed me some things that I could do. You first had to learn the song, of course, and so I started listening to a lot of the fiddle tunes and... Then when I was a teenager, I heard a banjo player from West Virginia, Dwight Diller, play, and uh, just fell in love with claw hammer style. Now explain what that is. Claw hammer is where you, you don't pick up on a string. You're always striking the string down, and you hold your hand with the fingers curled under and your thumb kind of cocked up, and you're playing all the notes with a downstroke on your index finger while muting some of the strings with your middle finger and you're riding the thumb string non-stop except now and then you drop thumb down onto the second string and that's what claw hammer is it's an old old style of playing I remember asking uh, granny one time why she thought that style developed because that was not Lee Walling played a version of claw hammer but uh, the popular way of playing around here was a two finger style and I asked granny one time why she thought that that curling your hand around like that would have developed into a style of playing banjo with your fingers tucked, all of them curled in, and like almost making a fist, a loose fist. And she said, well, if you think about it, them poor old fellers would be out on the side of a mountain plowing all day, holding on to a plow handle. So when they came in, their hands would probably be blistered and so stiff that they would just adapt their playing of the, the banjo in the way that they'd held their hand all day long. And that made the most sense to me of anything that anybody's ever said. Can we have an example of that? Absolutely. I love a banjo. So, let me see. The lovely thing about a a banjo is that it, it is the only stringed instrument that is indigenous to America. The five-string banjo is. And uh, it's uh, one of the loudest, most obnoxious instruments as well. And Granny told me that in uh, the olden times, as she referred to them, which would have been her grandparents' generation, that the banjo was a woman's instrument. And I didn't know that. She said, it's a woman's instrument. And I said, well, why was that? And she said, because the men played the fiddle. And the women would accompany them on the banjo. She said, my great, 
grandmother, Betty Ray, was one of the best banjo players she'd ever heard. Wow, I had no idea. Yep, I didn't either. Um, and I said, well, why hadn't you told me that before? She was like up in her 80s. And she said, why, you hadn't asked me before now. So I wonder how many, many more things I missed because I just didn't know the right question to ask. But this is a tune that um, I actually learned from an uncle of mine by the name of Bard Ray. It's a tune called uh, St. Anne's Reel. Before we started recording, you told me what happened when you got the phone call from Barry Burgey about the National Heritage right. Fellows. Share that. I would be glad to. When uh, Barry was trying to get in touch with me back in April to let me know that I'd received the award, I didn't have a clue. I didn't even have a clue I'd been nominated for the award by anybody. And so I thought that Barry was getting in touch with me to ask me to emcee the ceremony. And I thought, well, golly, that'll be a that'd be a great gig, you know, to be able to go up and and be a part of that and get to meet all the recipients. So I asked Barry when we finally connected, like a couple of days later. I said, um, so Barry, honey, are you calling me up to ask me to MC the NEA Fellowship Awards? You know, that would be so cool, and I'd be glad to do that. Is that what you're after, dear? And there was a pause, and then he laughed, and he said, No, Sheila, honey, I would like for you to come up and take your award back to North Carolina with you. And I started to cry right there because I've, I understand, you know, about the NEA award and what it means. What does it mean? To me, what it means is the highest honor that you can receive doing the kind of traditional music or stories or songs that I do, it's the it's kind of the highest A-OK, you're doing exactly what you ought to be doing in this tradition, award that anybody can receive. I like that definition of it. You're yeah. doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Yes, and you get recognition and awarded for that. And, you know, what greater thing in your life can you receive than this that you're doing is exactly what you ought to be doing. That was 2013 National Heritage Fellow, Sheila K. Adams. Next week, Sheila returns to tell us some stories about Sodom, North Carolina. Sheila K. Adams will be one of the performers at the National Heritage Fellowships concert, which takes place here in Washington, D.C. at the Lisner Auditorium on Friday, September 27th at 8 p.m. The event is free and open to the public. You can find tickets at lisner.org. And if you can't make it to Washington, we're live streaming the concert on our website, arts.gov. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. 
Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. You heard excerpts from Young Hunting, Barbary Allen, Young Emily, The Seven Nights Drunk, Over Home, and St. Anne's Reel. All were performed by Sheila K. Adams. The Artworks podcast is posted each Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>